I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Welcome to What's Next. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health. We're going to be talking about substance use disorders and a lot of other associated topics with us. Andre Stokes, Senior Director of Specialty Substance Use Disorder Services for Best Self. Uh, Andre, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure. Um, unfortunately, you have a very serious you know, field that you're dealing with, but yet you seem to bring a certain... Uh, for lack of a better term, lightness to it. That you, uh, I get this sense just by being around you, the time that we've been here for a few minutes talking beforehand, that you have a, you're a, a person of optimism, and uh, y- even though you're in a, a very difficult field where the results aren't always so optimistic. Yeah, I think it's 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 very important to have a sense of optimism when working in the field of social work, behavioral health, human services, because the uh, the optimism can go a long way for the people that are being served in the community and also for the people who are working in the community as well. So those things can, can transfer and can help change a mood uh, within an environment relatively quickly. What drew you to this, this field? Uh, I would say what drew me to this field was um, the fact that the field had chose me. Okay. Uh, growing up, we grew up very, very humbly, and during the time, during the childhood, there were a lot of experiences that I had that helped me to understand the real world. Really? Yeah. And the real world was something that I knew needed to be addressed in, in a lot of different ways with regard to different types of challenges that people go through and how to overcome those challenges and so forth. And I'm not interested necessarily to pry on your, your personal situation when you were younger, but I'm wondering as, as you reflect back, it's interesting how you framed, how you saw the real world mm-hmm. maybe came to you at a little younger age than maybe it should have for, for any, kind, any child, of course. But looking back, did you, do you see situations where there were people that you knew, whether they were neighborhood people, relatives, whatever, that could have really benefited from the services that are available today? Oh, for certain. Um, Growing up, we uh, grew up in a a household that wasn't necessarily the most conducive to success. Okay. So having mental health challenges and addiction challenges and challenges with legal and incarceration were part of the were part of the development in the in the home in the home bringing home setting as well. So understanding that a lot of the folks who are in the community and the folks that were in the home can use those services and need a lot of help that helped me put together the aspect of what it means to be a human services worker and a social worker and a uh, behavioral health expert. Do you have an understanding of how that environment that you described impacted a young Andre Stokes? Do you have that understanding? Absolutely. Absolutely. The way that environment impacted a younger version of myself was it helped me to understand the 
dangers and the realism of some of the aspects that people go through still right. to this day in, in various forms one way or another. It also helped me to understand what decisions, what certain decisions can lead to mm-hmm. and how those decisions can impact you in the long term. Were you able to, I mean, now we're getting off the best uh, out of um, mental health a little bit, but for you, you were able to negotiate your way, nav- navigate your way through through that? Absolutely. I, I did have a lot of uh, guidance from my older brother, uh, Dr. Carl Stokes Jr. Yes, yes. Um, I got a lot, of, a lot of guidance from him, and uh, he kind of helped me uh, stay on the course. Yeah. And I followed a, in, a, in, a, in a lot of his footsteps and was able to navigate a lot of things. Now, that doesn't mean that there were no casualties. Right. <laughs> right. However, right. For the most we part. all have casualties, Andre. <laughs> now, yeah. No, so, and uh, for, for the most part, um, he helped me navigate through um, many of the treacherous waters that, were, that we were both in. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, it's really uh, fascinating. Thank you for sharing, and I apologize mm-hmm. for But it does, I think, bring into perspective maybe, uh, you know, how times have changed in so many ways. Yeah. Services are more available. Very. Methods are probably a little more refined and maybe a little more time proven than they were. At the same time, what about the need? Is the need growing? The need is growing. The need is definitely growing. Um, it was very high to begin with, but over the last 15-ish years, it has expanded in a way where the uh, addiction aspect has increased in a lot of lot of different neighborhoods and within a lot of different age ranges and demographics as well. What do you attribute that to? I mean, one has to be the the presence, obviously, of certain substances that are mm-hmm. that are, are um, readily available or more readily available. Mm-hmm. But are there other factors that you think are leading to this? I mean, you know, substance. You know, you can call it, you know, an opioid crisis in whatever terms you want to use. But most certainly it's, you know, the, when you account the number of deaths and the number of lives that are lives that are impacted, yeah. you know, a crisis is not, you know, an overstatement when right. it comes to this. So what are there other elements to this that you see that are societal pressures or whatever the case may be? Most certainly. Uh, the first element that I can explain and think of is uh, genetic predisposition. Okay. So we have the genetic predisposition um, for individuals who have grown up in households where substance use and mental health challenges were prevalent. And then uh, we also have the social media aspect where a lot of things are shared. And within social media, for the most part, you can't really get away from things that are happening. Mm. So, for example, when when things are happening happening in the community, you turn on your phone and you, it's there, and you can't really escape the, as well as you used to be before social media was a, was prevalent. Right, right. So, having the constant reminders and the constant access to a lot of the negativity that is in in the world can help exacerbate some of the addiction issues that we have in the community. What about the impact on the family when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, substance abuse? It's interesting. You, we were just kind of focusing on the individual. Let's maybe now go inside the family unit. What you see, how things play out. How, what, what do you see? I see that when an individual is going through addiction and they happen to have a family too, um, the family goes through the addiction with them indirectly. Mm. Now, directly can also be part of it, 
But speaking of it from an indirect standpoint, I think should go first because let's say you have a household with five people. You have, you know, uh, five people and one of them is struggling with, let's say, opioid use. That's not going to be a so much of a hidden addiction. At some point, it may get to the the level where it's noticeable okay. by, by the other family members, whether it's financial, whether it's intellectual, um, with mood fluctuations and, and so forth. The family eventually goes through the addiction with the person. And if not dealt with properly, then the addiction can transfer on more likely can more likely transfer on to an additional person in the family. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. So when treating a person with addiction, um, it's it's important to remember that the family can be treated as well or should be treated as well in one way or another. Maybe not with direct uh, hardcore interventions, but with perhaps peer engagements, social engagements and so forth, and, and at least knowledge of addiction too. So that the one person who is using isn't necessarily going through it fully alone to develop an understanding as a family unit. I can certainly see that the value and the support aspect mm-hmm. that a family member might want to give or would most certainly want to give to a loved one, you would think. At the same time, is there an openness and understanding then, especially I would think for parents and maybe more specifically father figures in families, of a little bit of resistance to the idea that I need help, that it's me that needs help. I thought we were talking about my son, my daughter, my wife, whatever, who has the substance abuse disorder. Is there a little bit of resistance sometimes naturally inside families? For sure. Definitely. Yeah. There, there, there is resistance um, a lot of times when an individual is struggling with addiction and their family is brought into it as a supportive service, a supportive system. Um, I have seen individuals fight back on that to have it more solo and more, more personalized just towards them and not to include the family members. And that can be from a plethora of different reasons, such as privacy, not wanting to to disclose certain things with with other family members. Um, There could also be an attention aspect to it as well, because a lot of individuals who have used were in some ways deprived of certain types of attention as well. So if a person is going through treatment and they're receiving the attention attention from a counselor and mm-hmm. medical staff, they there's a chance that they may not want to share that attention with the other family members as well. Really? Mm-hmm. So that, I don't want to be too general in, in my, my work here, but that lack of attention or the way you are attended perhaps as a family member can be a factor in ending up with substance use issues? It can be. It can be. A lot of, um, especially for, for you know, our, our current time, our current era, yeah. where a lot, of, a lot of children are addicted to their phones mm-hmm. and they may not have as many conversations with parents and other relatives and other siblings as they would have had in the 80s, 90s, and so forth. That can play a role in the solidarity. Mm. And where there's solidarity in some cases other things can develop to cover some of the time that would not would, would that would be used with other things sure. such as conversations and time spent with family members so some then uh, the natural assumption then is that sometimes especially with if it's a, when we're talking about it let's just say we're talking about a, a child in a family unit mm-hmm. there might be 
there may there just may not be a lot of interaction for a parent to see the signs. Right, right. And when when that happens, um, a lot of times the signs are there, but like you mentioned, they might be they might go unseen due to a lot of the dynamics that we currently have. We have a lot of single fa- single parent households. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of split families, and we have a lot of uh, families that have children that are in different age ranges and go off into different areas. So you may have a an 18 year old who hangs with other 18 year olds who has a nine year old brother right. who may not be with the 18 year olds, but maybe with other nine and 10 year olds. So there's a split dynamic as well. So that encourages or, or increases the chances of having less interaction within the family unit as well. well let's maybe talk about two parents then for just mm-hmm. a little bit here. Sure. Thoughts to them. I, I think I always remember, well, have you noticed changes in behavior in your child? Well, if your child's always on their phone <laughs> or playing uh, an online game or something along those lines, maybe uh, you wouldn't necessarily notice it. But what should parents be looking for? I think some of the parents should be looking for behavioral changes, um, mood changes, fluctuations in academics, fluctuations in their interests, or perhaps even sudden changes in interests. So okay. if it's if you have a, a, a child who plays sports and is, has been an avid athlete and suddenly they don't want to play sports anymore at all, that can be a red flag. Okay. Because there could be something else on their mind. There could be something in the way. There could be substance use within the teams as well. So really? Are, yeah, so those are some things to, to that I advise uh, folks to look out for. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it comes to that type of situation then, who is the person usually to make the connection with an agency, like, say, like Best Self, to get that help? Where, you know, who is making that first step, or is it sometimes any any member of the family? Maybe it can be any member of the family, but traditionally, we've seen um, within within the field itself, the field has seen uh, f- uh, parents parents make, usually make the first move, and what, what what prompts them finding substances, findings finding the substances, uh, observing that a child may be under the influence as well, mm. and the the social dynamics that may change. So one of the things that I like to I'm a strong proponent of is show me who your friends are and I'll show you who you're going to become. So a lot of times when those friend circles change and they change rapidly and they change in a direction that may seem abnormal. That's another that's another one of those signs. And that's when parents are more likely to make the first move on behalf of their child. I want to follow up a little bit, uh, maybe on your own personal experience here again, because you you described your your household Mm -hmm. earlier, you know. When we're kids, you know, we're, you know, it's one thing we're playing with our, maybe the same, same buddies mm-hmm. when we're five, maybe we're eight, yeah. 10, 12, but then we get to those other years, those teen years, and maybe one buddy goes off and gets a little more adventurous than yeah. others and takes more risks that will perhaps influence how, you know, how, take us through that, that, I guess, pressure on maybe a child. Mm-hmm but also on the family as well, how that can come in and influence a family mm-hmm. and how people can try to maybe protect themselves from it. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the aspect of peer pressure is huge within our, our, our youth population because, of course, everyone wants to fit in. Right. Um, everyone wants to fit in. They want to be liked and, and so forth, and that's not wrong. That's, that's perfectly Oh, that's natural. Yeah. Right, yeah, perfectly natural. Um, but I think once 
people have that knack to fit in with crowds that aren't as um, healthy, mm-hmm. intellectually healthy, or, or or crowds that have experiences that are not as positive, that can start a transition within a behavior change in the child. Okay. And keeping in mind that a child's brain is not is nowhere near fully developed, so they may not even notice changes within their environment, changes within their moods. So that's where it's up to uh, a lot of the parents and guardians and caregivers to try to keep an eye on those be- on those behavior changes um, because the, the, the peer pressure is a huge, a huge factor in, in our youth. We are talking with Andre Stokes today, Senior Director of Specialty Substance Use Disorder Services for Best Self. And a lot of our focus today um, on the impact of addiction when it comes to families. Mm-hmm. All right, so... I can only imagine what some of these dynamics are like for the counselor mm-hmm. and for the family and for the, the person who's struggling with, with uh, substance use. Let's talk about, and you've probably, I'm sure you've done it many times, you know, the first, the first time into counseling for mm-hmm. a family or for somebody, a young person who's using, what is, what can, are there similarities or are they always different both okay so a lot of the a lot of the baseline challenges can be similar uh because of the types of drugs that are out there and the way people become addicted but there are all there are also those intricacies when you start adding in factors such as poverty um uh financial vulnerability um sexuality as well within our youth uh different types of abuse physical abuse emotional abuse and so forth those are that's where the dynamics can start to shift and become more personalized within the family unit or within the client itself. Okay. So when you consider the other dyads within that client, that's when it's important to customize their treatment. So if a client comes in and has struggled with, let's say, opioid use and has a history of sexual abuse as well, you want to treat the opioid use as well as provide the therapeutic relationship for the sexual trauma and anything else that may have happened for that for that individual as a as a counselor do you have or have you developed a sixth sense because i when you're talking about like sexual abuse you know you pointed to that that as one example mm-hmm. very personal i mean yeah. you know trying to hide your substance use is one thing and that's right. personal right. but then when it comes to something like as sensitive as as sexual abuse do you have a sixth sense where Maybe you know there's more here than what you're hearing. Absolutely, I um I've I've developed that over the over the years. It's I've been in the field for about 17 years, and I've developed a a sense and somewhat of a an, an extra eye to listen to what they're not saying. Okay. So if a, if an individual comes in and is looking for treatment or help with mental health, what other factors? could be prevalent and being able to spot what they're not saying and look looking looking in between the lines is i think very very important because it gives you a a pathway to frame questions in a different way not ask directly but to frame questions differently to encourage them to share information that isn't in an intimidating direct question right and yet, and uh, but 
you've had success in that regard, finding those pathways. Yes. Do you find it also at the same time, even though there there'd be that natural reluctance to express something so traumatic as, say, sexual abuse, at the same time, maybe there is a part of all uh, patients um, to share that, to finally get that out one way or the mm-hmm. other. Yeah, yeah. Some of the things that I've seen um, are a person coming in for treatment for one issue, and six, seven, eight months later, they finally tell you uh, what has been brewing in them since they were 10 years old. You know, mm. it's just certain things that um, they never wanted to share. So a lot of times when individuals come in, they'll put the focus on one challenge that they have, and there are four or five more that they didn't share yet and that you didn't treat. And I think it's important for a counselor to create a space that is comfortable enough for them to want to share those extra intimate details outside of their primary concern. All right, counselor, how do you go about doing that? I mean, you're the expert, <laughs> you've been doing it for 17 years, so it took, took some time to do it. But So what are some of the methods that, that you utilize? Because this, uh, you know, breaking down barriers mm-hmm. is never easy. Right, right. Some of the methods that I, I've used are, first and foremost, present as a human. A lot of times um, some some people may be in a position of the counselor is the authority Right. In the room. You're another teacher. You're right. a parent or right. whatever. Yeah. And that's that's so far from the truth. The counselor is another human. So if you can portray that and let them know that you're also another human as well, that can reduce some of the stress for an individual who's coming in to share some of their most private details. Um, it it may or may not, depending on the client, depending on the, the type of problem to relate to the client with your own personal experience and to self-disclose in a way that is beneficial to the client and not self-disclose in a way that is just you getting some stuff off your chest (laughs) too, because (laughs) they came in to see you. Yeah. So using your experiences to help create a platform that is comfortable enough for people to want to share with you, because again, you are a human and you are reminding them that you are a human through the way you, the way you move. How deep do you have to go sometimes for, from your own, like you said, the steps you have to take to show that you, just as human as the person sitting across from you, how, how mm. deep do you have to, to, to go? I mean, with some clients, they must be, it can be very, very difficult to, to, to crack, I would think. Oh, for, for sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. There have been, I've worked with uh, several people who have been very, very difficult to reach. And sometimes it takes a little longer to, to, get, to get them to open up more to you. And as far as depth, I've disclosed uh, some of the things that I've encountered during my childhood, and that helps a lot of people to say, "Oh man, this dude, he went through some stuff too." Right? Maybe he would understand if I tell him a little bit more about the thing I went through that I didn't tell him last week. Yeah, you know. So self-disclosing is it, it can be tricky. Just knowing how to do it in a way that's beneficial for the individual. Right. Mm. Not a, not everybody wants to hear all of our stories, right? Right. Necessarily, right. but the Finding the right ones, right. I guess, are the, yeah. is part of the key. Um, you, the way you d- to describe that last kind of imagining the the encounter, but so whenever therapy ends, and sometimes I guess counseling it 
you know, goes on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But do you get those conversations maybe moving on when you're with somebody for a long period of time where they say, you know, Mr. Stokes, Andre, when you said such and such, it made all the difference. Have you had that kind of uh, reaction? Yes, yeah, certainly I have. Um, there, <laughs> there were a few times where counseling was going so well for an individual. Um, I, I myself had to say, I think it may be, what are your thoughts on transitioning to a different level of care? Okay. So kind of frame it for them, ask them what their thoughts are versus, well, we've, we're done here. We're, we, you've achieved all your goals. Right. It's frame it in a way to give individuals the choice and see how they feel about moving on to a different level of care, whether it's a higher level of care or a lower level of care, whichever is most appropriate. Um, but giving them the autonomy to make the decision and guide them through that decision. Bring, let's bring the family back in now. Um, we've moved a little, a little more toward the, the individual, and let's get into the family and where they can come in, both not only as a support, mm-hmm. but also as being someone, again, understanding that they're being impacted yeah. by this person's behavior. That right off the, off the, the bat, it's got to be a, a challenge, right? I'm a sister. I'm a brother. Mm-hmm. I'm not the one using anything. What, how does this impact me? Yeah. Um, how hard of a lift is that? That's a very, very, very hard lift um, because we have to think about the relationship that individuals have with their, their family members. Some people have family members, but at the same time, they don't. Mm. So a person may have a brother, sister, mother, father, but by blood only, right. not by relation. So navigating through that can be very, very difficult. And when you're bringing in the family unit, I think it's important for the family members that are in it to want to be there and to want to be that additional support. Because when family members are there and they aren't really in the mindset to provide that support, that's going to be very, very detrimental to the the primary individual who's receiving that service. So you have to make some tough decisions as a counselor. Yes. Yes. We don't need sister here. We don't need or we just can't have so-and-so. Do you have to make that decision sometimes? Yeah, I, I, I have in the past. And um, this, the, those decisions can be communicated in a way that is tactful in, in a lot of cases. You seem like so. you have a lot of the tactful part <laughs> in your hair. But I can appreciate that. But yet yeah. still, you've got to make that decision. You're, in, in your, you've got to come to that, that judgment, right? Right, yes, yeah. And, and, and that also depends on the type of... Uh, program that the person is in too so some some programs may allow a counselor to have more autonomy than others because a lot of it is client-centered and person-centered so if an individual is is in a in a group session or in a family group session and one individual and one family member doesn't want to be there it would be up to the client to say i don't want my sister here okay i don't want my dad here or whomever it is so it depends on the agency depends on the the type of programming okay. and there may be but grant do, funding. Do the, does the counselor have to maybe lead the individual though to that conclusion? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in, in some of the programs that are where the counselor is a, a has a little bit of a different role, the sure. counselor can make that decision. Okay. And those are tough decisions for, for, for everyone. Um, but being able to communicate that effectively and respectfully and gently, that can make, that can make the difference. Right. So as opposed to, giving a, a command or a directive, such and such, you shouldn't be here today. 
you would frame that in a way in that asks a question and allows them to answer the question. So you would say something something close to what do you think that comment or that disposition does for your brother? So you see, you frame right. it, you frame it in a way where it's a question and get them to think. And then eventually it's possible that they would say, you know what? Maybe I don't need to be here because I don't want to, or I'm not ready to be here. Wow. That's it. To, I think one of the things that it's difficult when you think about this is I think for anybody, and you can appreciate this. I'm sure you've heard this from families that you've sat down with. You know, I can't imagine this being my family. I can't imagine having my son having a, a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only imagine what those those conversations are like. What so then? What options are there then? So we know that there's a we'll just use a 15 year old in the household who's got a, a an opioid addiction. That person's in the household, a family of five, right? Mm-hmm. A sister, brother, two parents. Mm-hmm. You know what are the options? What are the pathways for for families? There, there are quite a few now that we're in a, a, a newer age of treatment, a newer okay. age of, of So medicine. this has changed. And, yeah, this definitely years, yeah. changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of mobile programs. So there are a lot of programs that can come to the client okay. and come to the family because a lot of individuals have transportation barriers. They have insurance barriers. Uh, they may have had negative experiences at other places with previous counselors and so forth. You never really know what a person has experienced when they try to reach out for help before. So taking a, gen- a more gentle approach and in, in incorporating mobile, mobile services has been very, very, very beneficial, and that's throughout the country. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there are also, there's been an, an, an emergence in, I want to say homeless services for not just adults, but homeless services for teenagers too. Hmm. So there are a lot of safe spaces now that individuals can can drop into up to the age of 18, 19, 20 and be able to if they if they leave the home or run away from from, you know, their parents house, whatever it is, they can come to these these safe spaces and have a place to stay for the night so that they're not sleeping on the streets because, you know, the streets will eat a teenager alive at at, at, at certain points at some point. So. That's another another new addition to the types of services that are in within within the country, and additionally, there's been a, a new focus on substance use treatment for teenagers as well. There are a lot of residential facilities that house teenagers and individuals who've run away from home and may or may not have a substance use disorder and so forth. So those are a lot of things that weren't really prevalent in the in the '90s or maybe even early 2000s. Okay. Um, so I'm just happy to 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 know that those types of services are available now for our youth and for our families. Yet there needs to be more services, right? Always. Yeah. Always. There is in in some ways there there's a need for counselors and clinicians of color. Um there are a lot of folks who would only like to work with clinici- clinicians who are of certain backgrounds. And being able to provide those options for people who are looking for, for treatment is, is essential as well because some people simply won't engage in treatment if they don't have a black counselor, if they don't have a Hispanic counselor, if they don't have um, a white counselor and so forth. So a lot of people have their, their nuances that make them feel more comfortable disclosing. 
And that's an issue. We're getting off the topic here just a little bit, but you did touch upon it, and you did touch upon it before we went on the air, that that was a significant and remains to be a significant issue after the the uh, top shootings on May 14th, mm-hmm. 2022, mm-hmm. that though there were, and I know a lot of agencies um, were made themselves available, yeah. Johnny B. Wiley, wherever in the neighborhood. It was a huge issue, though, that there just weren't enough counselors who were people of color. Right. That that was a, a the community had made it very, very known, uh, within my experiences at least, that uh, we need counselors who look like the community because of the type of crime that was committed and why it was committed that made that made the the, the difference that made the difference so it was with a, a racially motivated crime we would rather have cl- clinicians of color come into the community and provide these services and i think it's important to remember that we have two ears and one mouth so that we can listen twice as much as we speak hmm. and when we're providing the treatment it's important to listen to the community to give them what they are asking for, which will eventually increase the chances of people engaging the treatment and succeeding. And from your perspective, I think I think everybody heard that, mm-hmm. but are we seeing, is that something that maybe is, maybe commu- created a bit of a culture shift to, and we can't speak nationally necessarily, but perhaps locally that, yeah, you know, we we need to make sure that we have Counselors available of all different backgrounds yes. to make sure that, that they can reach out to people who are needed because the, the needs are so great. Yes, um, there has been an, an increase in the onboarding of a lot of clinicians of, of color because that that speaks to the needs of the community. We talked a little bit, a little bit about needs earlier and in, in what, what the community desires and requires. And being intentional about staffing is very, very important because you want to be able to reach everyone, not just um, a certain demographic or reach the, reach the demographics but not have the, that population be as comfortable as they could be. So being intentional about the types of individuals who are working in agencies I think is, is important. Stay with us. There's more to come. This is What's Next on WBFO. Join WBFO every Saturday at 6 p.m. for an insightful and enlightening series of audio documentaries from our region that tackle topics such as the environment, health, the world of entertainment, and more. Listen to the WBFO DocuHour every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on WBFO, your NPR station. It's Reading Rainbow's 40th anniversary, and we're celebrating by releasing 40 full episodes of the classic PBS children's series. Look for new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday through February on the Reading Rainbow YouTube channel. Visit readingrainbow.org watch to find family activities for you and your child to do together after watching episodes. Activities are available in both English and Spanish. The episodes are available on YouTube for a limited time, so subscribe so you don't miss any. Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two. Sounds great. Let's go. The podcast world is overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from. But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplified BTPM Pods app. Here you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario, our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone. Listen to the best independently produced podcast in the region anywhere, anytime. 
Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with Andre Stokes, Senior Director of Specialty Substance Use Disorder Services at Best Self. Uh, we've gotten in a, a lengthy conversation about the uh, impact of addiction on family units, but I'm, I'm interested in following up a little bit more about finding and identifying and, like you said, intentionally being intentional when it comes to mm-hmm. the types of counselors, who is the counselor, where those counselors are being utilized. How about for you? What is your word to a young person who says, well, maybe I am interested in being in social services or maybe right now, why should I be interested? I mean, what, mm-hmm. what are those conversations like? Because it sounds like you understand, it sounds like agencies understand they need counselors of color. Mm-hmm. I'd say to an individual who is, who is looking for, for treatment is, and is you know, on the fence about treatment, I would remind them that at some point in life, we all need a hand and we all need a boost. And I'm no exception. There are points where I've needed a hand. There are points where I still need a hand. So being able to be mindful enough of your own comfort levels and capabilities, as well as what where you could go, I think is important. So being intentional about what your needs are and acknowledging how you would like to meet those needs is, is a crucial step in starting the next phase in any kind of treatment or recovery. What about for perspective counselors? What are your thoughts to them? What what do you look for in a counselor? What are you saying to a counselor when you're when you're being the person who's saying maybe I want this person on my team? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're just starting out in the field. Whatever, you know. What, for lack of a better term, what is your recruiting pitch? I am looking for individuals who are more likely to be comfortable in certain settings. Okay. Because a lot of the work that is done is done within inner city settings and in communities of color. So bringing in counselors who are not afraid to be around communities of color is important, as well as being in in communities that are more suburban and more rural, too. So having people who can work with an eclectic group of of individuals in the the community is, is imperative to client success and the development of the counselor as well, because of course, we want counselors to expand and get better and hone their craft and find what works for them. And it, you may not be able to hone your craft as much if you're working with one population. Being able to see the different cultural shifts and the cultural signs within the community is part of the process of developing as a counselor to be a better counselor and eventually move into training more counselors. Um, are counselors... Is it more important that they have that sense, almost a heroic sense that they want to change and help everybody, or is it more important that they are somebody who has empathy and can listen? And uh, I'm trying to draw mm-hmm. a, a kind of fine distinction because yeah. I can see people wanting to be in this field to make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to do. They want to make a difference, but 
Yeah. Maybe that's not necessarily the 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 real energy that makes makes a difference here. Right. So it, that that uh, that can be split into two ways. So of course we want to we want to save the world and save everybody, but using the empathy in the relational aspect, you realize that you may not be able to that you're not going to be able to save everybody. Sometimes we lose people, and that's those are those are travesties that I've seen far too often. Um, but having the empathy in those relational personal aspects about 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 your spirit, about your soul. That's what makes a counselor. So of course credentials and all those things yeah, come into play. Yeah. But who you are and your your level of empathy is the baseline, in my opinion. You can get credentials just about anywhere if you go through the process. But if you're not an empathetic person, you're not gonna be as an effective counselor as you could be if you were an empathetic person. So I think that part is where it starts. And that part is much more important um, in the overall process. Do counselors learn empathy or is it something if you don't have it, you don't have it? I, I want to say if, if you, can, you can learn empathy because coming into the field, when you don't know what you don't know. And when you finally start to learn what you don't know, empathy can be built. It can be created. And that's where, for personally speaking, that's where I've developed a, a knack for substance use. Because at a certain age, yeah, I, I, I grew, up, grew up within substance use, but I didn't really understand. And as I began to understand and learn more about it, I became even more empathetic about it, which led me to staying in, in the field and working into the field and expanding in those different ways. So the empathy can help you expand the knowledge levels as well. What ha- what did you learn? What you said you said your understanding of substance abuse has increased. Mm-hmm. You know, you you saw it around you when you were younger, mm-hmm. but you understand it more now. What don't we understand? And I guess maybe we're getting at the this should have been the lead when we started this whole <laughs> thing off for for, for, for our listeners. What do we need to understand about substance abuse? And, and take us through your, your development of expertise on this. Right. So I think what we do need to understand and remember about substance use is that it is a disease. Some people see it as just a choice, but it's it's a disease. It's, a, it's an actual disease that needs treatment, just like um, cancer, just like anything else. Substance use is a disease that needs attention. And some of the most important factors I've learned about substance use uh, maybe in my teenage years, maybe late teens, was were that it's it's substance use doesn't just come out of nowhere in most cases. It's a combination of experiences that lead up to the first use. Those experiences being, um, as we mentioned before, abuse, those experiences being, you know, financial factors as well as mental health challenges that may or may not be diagnosed. Um, learning, the other thing that I learned is that mental health and substance use intertwine with one, with one another very, very well, and they feed off one another. So when an individual is going through a mental health crisis, they're, are, they're more likely to use, and when a person is using, they're more likely to go through a mental health crisis. So they intertwine within the DNA very, very well, and that's where the the joint treatment idea comes in to treating the mental health and the substance use. Are you at the point now where you're not surprised anymore about the types of people who come looking for 
treatment or get treated. Uh, it could be anybody. <laughs> I have reached that point probably six years ago when I worked with a famous athlete who was struggling with substance use. Um, would have never known what this individual was struggling with substance use pretty heavily. It, it, it made me realize, I, I had already knew that it can hit anybody. Sure. But it just put into perspective um, that the, the, it doesn't discriminate. There, the, the spectrum is all across the board with substance use and mental health. And it, it, made, it, it helped me to think about how many other people are struggling with the disease silently and are public figures. We're talking with Andre Stokes. We're coming down to our final couple of moments here on what's next. Andre is Senior Director of Specialty Substance Use Disorder Services for Best Self. Uh, we've had a, a conversation that's wound through a lot of different topics here today, not the least of which uh, the impact of addiction on, on family life. Uh, what about, though, for you, this is your home, Buffalo's your home, mm -hmm. so people know you. They know you from your time as a young person in the city of Buffalo. Are there conversations that you're still having trying to convince perhaps maybe older people in the community, not necessarily older people in the community, but convincing them that mental health issues are everywhere, that they need to be addressed, and they need to be confronted? Are, are there still, do you, do you come across people who are just like, I don't get it, you know, toughen up, mm -hmm. you know, don't use drugs. Uh, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just trying to speak on on a simple level. Do you run into that, and how do you how do you uh, address that? I run into that uh, quite quite often, and a lot of times that's more prevalent in the uh, senior population. And I actually had this discussion a few days ago regarding the senior population and their take on what mental health is and and substance use and so forth. Um, one of the things that I one of the ways that I respond is to. Just remind, I like to try to remind people that the mental, the, our knowledge of mental health and our knowledge of substance use has come a long way. And for individuals who aren't necessarily in the field or tied into the field, they may not understand that. So I have to keep in mind that there may be a knowledge gap with regard to perhaps age differences or experiences as well. O on the other hand, there are some times where I may not engage because going back to we can't save everybody, that, us, that, also, that doesn't always mean we can't save the people who are in, in addiction, but we can't always save the people who don't want to understand. So there, there, there's a line that each person has to navigate within their own in saving their energy for the individuals who are more likely to want to understand versus kind of having the, the, what I like to call the verbal ping pong and the verbal tennis with someone who may not be in a position to understand at that time. What about uh, the, the term, uh, it's become something I've just kind of encountered recently, intergen I think intergeneration or generational trauma. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is particularly something that you're seeing Perhaps maybe in the uh, East Side community, the Black community, maybe even more so than than others. One hundred percent. Yeah, percent. And the intergenerational trauma is a huge part, um, not only in the Black community, but but in in all communities. 
and you know they like to say sometimes the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree we we've heard that a bunch of times and when a person is when a person has experienced an individual a family member or a, a mother or grandparent or uncle aunt who has gone through some things that filters down and it kind of trickles down and they have those experiences indirectly as well so that can go from 10 generations before you or, you know, it can go 10 generations after me. So being mindful of where you come from is I think is a is a, a big factor in helping you navigate and reduce the risk of um, falling into the cycle of addiction or falling into the cycle of untreated mental health. And so, you know, we talked about the, the need, how it has grown. Mm-hmm. Services are more readily available. Mm-hmm. But am I to infer then that just by the way you're talking about that, that I don't want to say make a, a, a whole wide cast here. Does everybody need mental health assistance or, or counseling? But are there a lot more people who really probably, if they don't get some help or they don't address this soon, mm-hmm. there's going to be problems coming down the road, if not for them, perhaps maybe for their, their next generation? Yes, that's, that's something I've seen. There have been a lot of people who were um, who have been – you know, discharged and removed from various clinics that I've that I've been a part of in the in the years, who weren't necessarily ready for treatment but needed it. And when an individual isn't ready or desiring treatment, you can't necessarily force them into treatment. Sometimes a court can, but that's a different that's a different sure avenue. Um, and understanding that if a person is no longer engaged in treatment that you think they need, at the very least trying to keep an eye on them in a way that is not as invasive as actual treatment. So okay. just follow up phone call. How are you? We're still here if you need it. If they hang up on you, been I've been hung up on a thousand times. <laughs> a, a, a thousand you times. Right? No, no. <laughs> People hung up on me a thousand times. And, and that, that's that's fine. You're at least making the attempt <laughs> and letting them know of the different resources that are in the area. Um, but that does happen. Okay. Um, yeah. We didn't mention it. Uh, hopefully, I'm not uh, stepping out, out of bounds here, but no. we did talk about this beforehand. Y- your doctorate, you're, you're going to be pursuing your doctorate. Yes, yes. Your, um, your specialty, your focus is going to be, uh, tell, tell us about it. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm currently working on my doctorate. Uh, my research is on black mental health with specific regards to individuals who have experienced an incarcerated relative and how they have been able to address their their mental health symptoms and history as well. So that that is an, an area that is very near and dear to me because that is a personal experience of mine. Um, mental health and addiction and incarceration uh, have run through my family. And I think being in a position to shed some light on the intricacies of how incarceration impacts a family is is imperative to further research that can be done after me. So there is research on on mental health and incarceration, but only to a degree where we're talking about how the incarceration impacts certain individuals of color and what they can do, what they have done to navigate towards treatment. Um, it sounds like a, a fascinating field for sure, and a, and a, and a fascinating focus and. What do you understand right now about about that? Maybe whether it's from your own personal experience, mm-hmm. some of the research that you've done to this point, you know, 
I don't want to say general statements, but mm-hmm. the types of the, the, the how people are impacted when perhaps a family member is incarcerated. What does the the person experience? When a person is is experiencing has an incarcerated family member or parent, they are much much more likely to follow down that road. Mm. So the incarceration aspect that's also intergenerational, and that's a part of inter, intergenerational trauma. So having an incarcerated parent or having an incarcerated relative, that increases the chances of a person themselves being incarcerated by uh, 29%. And, and that's, a, that's a huge chunk. That's Absolutely. a huge percentage because we learn from the people that are closest to us in most cases. Um, in addition, an individual who has experienced an incarcerated relative or incarcerated parent is more likely to have to experience financial, um, tr- financial challenges because that's there there's a there's a gap between incarceration and societal functionality is what what we like to what we like to frame it as and that gap incorporates skills such as employment uh skills such as social endeavors engagement skills emotional regulation and so forth so having an incarcerated relative is is a significant disadvantage to a child who is trying to grow up and especially a child who is experiencing other factors within black and brown communities as well. So I think based on the pretty stunning number, 29%, mm-hmm. this is a cycle. This is something that is repeating mm-hmm. through generations. I know you're just starting on your research for your doctorate, <laughs> but at the same, and I've talked to you about your optimism. Do you have that hope that there are going to be ways and methods to stop that cycle. Maybe uh, stopping that might be that might be a reach, but reducing, finding a way to reduce the cycle or reduce the impact of the cycle, because um, prisons are are they're full, and they 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 may they may continue to be full. Um, and it, at the very least, finding ways to help individuals reduce their chances of ending up in prison as well and not simply following the footsteps of an incarcerated family member. Final question. You've got a, a 16-year-old at, at the, in your life. Yes. Does your 16-year-old think that you know all the answers? No, absolutely <laughs> that you're not. Always, no, that you're always <laughs> analyzing? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure my 16-year-old thinks I know absolutely nothing about life because what would what, what would I know her, about anything? What right? would a 16-year-old know, believe their parents know <laughs> well, about yeah, anything? What would I know about anything, right? <laughs> oh. Well, Andre Stokes, uh, I do appreciate the, the, uh, the insight and the, the conversation here and uh, – Really appreciate your optimistic approach yes, to this. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. Andre Stokes is the Senior Director of Specialty Substance Use Disorder Services for Best Self. He joins us today on What's Next. This is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.